Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhuku, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Chad closes. Its border with violence ravaged Central African Republic. Kenyan lawmakers threaten to evict British farmers. And September 11 Memorial Museum opens in New York. In economics, IMF predicts a bright future for sub-Saharan Africa. And in sports news, South Africa to be represented by four teams in CAF club competitions. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. A British travel agency says it's evacuating hundreds of tourists from Kenya after Britain's foreign office warned people to leave because of terrorist threats. Package holiday operator Thomson have started flying its customers on holiday in Kenya back to the UK following updated travel advice from the government. The foreign office on Tuesday said all but essential travel to Mombasa Island and the surrounding coastal area should be avoided and then visitors already there should leave. The company is also cancelling all flights to Mombasa until the end of October. Earlier, Kenya's Foreign Affairs Ministry condemned the international community for issuing travel advisories for the tourist town of Mombasa. The ministry has termed the advisories by the United States, Britain, France and Australia as unfortunate. Manaho Isipisu is spokesperson for President Uhuru Kenyatta. We do have heightened visible policing in Mombasa. We do have a lot of people on the ground there. We believe that we're doing all we can without giving details that may harm the operation to ensure that Mombasa remains safe. We do not delight in seeing any advisories against travel to Kenya. In fact, we abhor advisories. We believe that governments should talk directly to us about what it is we are doing rather than uh, issue advisories against travel. At least 31 people, many of them civilians, have been killed in clashes between Christian and Muslim fighters in the Central African Republic this week. Fighting broke out on Monday outside Tukor when fighters from Seleka, the mostly Muslim rebel movement that seized power last year, attacked a roadblock set up by the militiamen of the Christian anti-Balaka group. Central African Republic's National Red Cross confirmed that its workers had counted around 30 bodies on Wednesday after having initially been barred from entering the town by Seleka fighters. The International Committee of the Red Cross is planning its first airdrops in two decades to help thousands affected by fighting in South Sudan. The Geneva-based group says it needs to get food and supplies to families cut off in settlements by seasonal rains. Five months of conflict in South Sudan have left a million people displaced and driven 300,000 over the borders as refugees. President Silvakia and rebel commander Rehik Machar signed a ceasefire last Friday, but it was violated hours after it took effect. 
More than 30 million children in Africa are out of school, according to a report launched by the Tanzanian government and the UN Cultural Agency, UNESCO in Dar es Salaam. The 2014 Education for All Global Monitoring Report identifies the shortage of quality teachers as the key problem in the efforts to provide children with quality education. UNESCO representative to Tanzania, Abdul Wahab Kulabali, says despite, despite progress, None of the six internationally agreed education for all goals is likely to be met. In Africa, for instance, the report says that primary cycle is completed by less than 70% of primary school age children. 31 million children are out of school, of which 53% are girls. 22 million youth are out of school, 182 million adults are illiterate. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on this Friday, the 16th of May, the 136th day of the year 2014, with exactly 229 days left in the year. Our top story, Cameroonian troops have crossed over to the Central African Republic and freed eight of 20 people kidnapped recently by Seleka rebels. The military says no one was killed in the operation. Seleka rebels in the Central African Republic have increasingly resorted to kidnappings and ransom demands to fund their activities. Channel Africa's Muki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. A confrontation erupted when Cameroonian soldiers blocked armed Seleka fighters from entering the border town of Garwabulai in the east of Cameroon. The armed men from CAR retreated but later crossed over to Cameroonian territory and kidnapped 20 people. The governor of East Cameroon, Samuel Jedone Ivaha Boa, told Channel Africa in a telephone interview that some of the captives were seized from a public transport bus. In the vehicle, we didn't have more than six people, so they take all of them. We got the information and asked the forces to go to the field, so they made them, they started to shoot two of them, escape at midnight, and we are just asking people to see the forces, to give them assistance when they are traveling in the night. Ivaha Diboa said although one of the captives paid $150,000 of the $500,000 requested as ransom against the wish of the government of Cameroon and since they do not negotiate with rebels, Cameroonian forces raided bushes in the border region crossing to neighboring CAR and freed eight of the people. The spokesperson for Cameroon's military Colonel Didier Bajek says they are still working on a strategy to liberate the remaining hostages and secure the border with CAR from armed attacks. We still have the situation under control and the population have to be reassured that their security is guaranteed. We have occupied the field so that the response should be more spontaneous. We have also improved our equipment which have consequently improved the flexibility and the strength of our units. Channel Africa 
also asked the Jay Bajek to comment on newspaper reports that some Cameroonians are collaborating with the rebels. We don't want to imagine at all that the population can connive with our enemy. With heavy security presence in Bangui, CAR's capital and strict control along the border that has reduced supplies to armed groups in CAR, Seleka rebels have resorted to hostage takings for ransoms, especially on the border with Cameroon, through which most supplies to the landlocked country pass. Last week, the government of Cameroon said it had released 18 people held hostage in CAR but refused its paid ransoms. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundi. Chad's President Idris Derby has closed the country's border with Central African Republic pending an end to intercommunal violence there that has killed thousands and forced nearly one million people to flee their homes. Thousands of French and African troops have failed to stop the waves of killings that erupted after the predominantly Muslim Seleka rebel movement seized power in the majority Christian former French colony in March 2013. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Dr. Tijomo Hengari, a researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Certainly it will have a very profound impact on uh, the refugee crisis that you have in the Central African Republic. It could also potentially escalate the sectarian violence that is there because uh, those who are trying to flee that crisis will have nowhere to go. And uh, that in turn will also create a much bigger humanitarian crisis than what it is actually now. But I think it's also perhaps important to locate the closure of the border within the security dynamics within Chad as a country itself. Uh, I think Chad has been unstable for the best part of its existence since the 1960s, and the country has only been able to retain semblance of normality from 2003. And I think right now Chad has discovered oil, so the country is trying to, to, to pursue different trajectory of development. So any form of instability on its southern border could also potentially undermine security in Chad itself. So I think for Idris Deby, the challenge is, even if he had supported the Seleka rebels who overthrew President Fonzo Bozizé in the Central African Republic, I think he's facing now with a much bigger security challenge as a result of the current uh, sectarian violence that is taking place in the, in the Central African Republic itself. But now we know that um, Chadian troops were accused by many in the Central African Republic of siding with the Seleka rebels who are mainly Muslim. Would this also not have anything to do with Chad closing its borders, say, you know, maybe a case of sour grapes? Well, I think it is true that the Seleka rebels seems to have lost the upper hand. The president who was supported by Chad, Michel Jotoria, was forced to resign and has been replaced by Catherine Samba. So I think you have quite interesting internal dynamics in the Central African Republic that have possibly created a view on the part of Idris Deby that this is not a situation that he can manage anymore. So the best option is to try and secure his own border by sealing it off because in the past there has been rebellions against the government of Idris Deby operating from the Central African Republic. So I think that fear is still real. It's not just one that is, uh, that is perceived. Now, President Idris Deby 
as we have established, has said the border will be closed until the violence in the Central African Republic comes to an end. And yet it seems this is not going to happen anytime soon. And Chad has been really at the heart of African efforts to stabilize the neighboring countries. That's before it withdrew its forces from the Central African Republic last month. So what does this mean? Does this mean that African efforts to stabilize the situation, will they be undermined? Yes, I think uh, there are two potential outcomes here. One of them, the decision by Idris Deby to, uh, to close the southern border with uh, the Central African Republic could also escalate international efforts to solve the problems in the Central African Republic because you would have possibly a Western insecurity situation in the north of uh, the Central African Republic and it could also potentially also incite more sectarian violence with uh, many Muslims essentially having fled the capital Bangui. So we are dealing with a double-edged stretch sword here. On the other side, it is true that this also signals the limits of the type of interventions that are currently there, especially African ones, because the majority of the peacekeepers in the Central African Republic are through the African Union, mostly from the neighboring countries. So there you have a clear instance of failure, if I may put it that way, because much of the, the security is essentially now uh, in the hands of, of the European Union, which is essentially controlling the airport in Bangui, and also a good number of French troops which are trying to create a semblance of, of stability within the capital itself. But outside Bangui, the situation is, is still tenuous. You know, there has not been a lot of uh, positive de- developments when it comes to the security situation. You've emphasized that President Idris Deby really wants to secure his borders, you know, so that he maintains security in his own country. But then, for a long time, armed groups from Chad have often been accused of crossing into the Central African Republic to stir up trouble. Now, is there any truth to these allegations? And if so, why would they do this if they want the situation in the Central Africa to be stable so that their country is also stable? It is true that uh, oh, there are strong allegations that it will be who initially also supported Afonso Bozize was behind the Seleka advance on Bangui that happened by the government of Fonzo Bosice last year, April. But I, one should also look at it in another way, and that is to say that uh, the situation currently is out of control for Idris Deby. You have a largely Christian-dominated capital city, Bangui. So in that sense, I think uh, uh, Idris Deby does not have the upper hand anymore when it comes to the politics of Central African Republic. In the past, he was a key driver in terms of, you know, the, the type of factors that were at the top. But right now, I think he's lost that upper hand. And the fear now on his part is one of saying, what are the potential consequences of Chad having lost the upper hand in the political dynamics of the Central African Republic? Maybe the best option is to try and seal off the border because he visited the border, I think, before he made that announcement. And he saw possibly how catastrophic the situation was, and also Chad's own inability to deal with that refugee crisis. So he could also be appealing to the international community to provide more assistance, even to Chad itself, in order to deal with that type of humanitarian or refugee crisis that has real security implications for Chad itself. That was Dr. Tijomo Hengari, researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, speaking to Khusiko Dingake.
Following a move by the British government to ban the use of the leafy substance cut in July this year, a group of Kenyan members of parliament from northeastern Kenya have threatened to evict all British farmers in the cat-growing areas in Kenya. UK government claims the leafy substance is a mild narcotic drug and has already been banned in most of Europe, including the US and Canada. Mwagi Konya reports from Nairobi. The decision by the British government to ban the leafy stimulant, locally known as Mira, has elicited fierce resistance in all guard-growing areas in Kenya and especially in the central highlands of the northeastern part of the country. Meru farmers in the area, including their members of parliament, are angry about the move by the British government to ban the use of the substance in July this year. Members of parliament from the Meru region have now tabled a motion in parliament calling for British farmers to be ejected from all guard-growing areas in Kenya if their government bans the export of the leafy substance into Britain. The substance has been exported to a number of countries over the years and has been traditionally used by Ethiopians, Kenyans, Somalis and Yemen communities. But it has been banned in a number of countries in Europe, including the U.S. and Canada, due to its narcotic content. But according to the Meru MPs, the British move will force almost 2 million people out of jobs, especially the youth. Most of you should be aware that uh, the Mirai industry is in its uh, almost death net. We are looking at uh, the closure of our market, last market, export market, which is uh, in UK after the House of Commons first banned Mirai from uh, being exported to UK. Uh, when this market closes, we love only Somalia to export to and some people are also agitating for the closure of the Somali market. Now, what is happening at the moment is that uh, we are still exporting the, to the UK, but the circumstances under which we are trading are very uncertain. Every day you, when you export your Mirai, you are not sure whether you are going to be paid. You are not even sure where that Mirai is destined to. You are not sure when that mirror is en route to London, it will, it will find that the market has been closed there. So we are not able to actually plan anything. The farmers don't even know what to do. If those of you have uh, visited Maua or Meru, you know that uh, most of the acreage, especially in Gambia and Tonyiri, are all mirror farmers. A big population of that Meru family in the Meru economy is dependent on the mirror business, the mirror farming. All these people don't know, are not sure about what is happening. We've not got uh, any clear indications from the government which direction the industry should. And as a result of the controversy surrounding the leafy substance, Kenyan authorities have instituted expert analysis of the substance through the National Authority for Campaign Against Alcohol and Drug Abuse. The International Narcotics Control Board is going to include it as part of the Schedule 1 drugs that are supposed to be uh, controlled. So that is the position. However, there is the other part of it. We as NACADA have no framework and we cannot ban. But it is however not yet clear how many British nationals own farms in Meru, although they maintain that British farmers in the area have about a quarter of the farmland, including wheat and barley farms. Since Kenya's independence, the UK government maintained a large military base in the area, where thousands of British soldiers train every year before deployment to Afghanistan and other conflict areas. British tourists also come to the area for recreational purposes. But economic analysts in Nairobi feel that even if the motion was passed in Parliament, it was unlikely the government would implement the bill given its policy for accommodating foreign investors. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi.
A Sudanese court has sentenced a 26-year-old pregnant woman to death for converting to Christianity. Maryam Yahya Ibrahim had been ordered to abandon her newly adopted Christian faith and return to Islam, but she refused. Under Sudan's interpretation of Sharia, a Muslim woman cannot marry a non-Muslim man and any such relationship is regarded as adulterous. Amnesty International has condemned the sentence handed down by a judge in Khartoum as appalling. So give us your view on this ruling. Email us on infochannelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The number of attacks by pirates in the Indian Ocean have gone down to just a handful annually, but the job is not yet complete. That was the message from the chairperson of the contact group on piracy off the coast of Somalia as the 16th plenary session of the body gets underway at the United Nations in New York. With the launch of the European Union NAVFO Operation Atlanta in 2008, attacks have dramatically fallen as the focus of the contact group moves from sea to what is happening on the shoreline of Somalia. Sean Braspeace reports. While piracy still remains a threat, it has largely been contained. From 47 vessels captured in 2010 to just a handful last year. Marciej Popowski is chair of the contact group. We managed to contain the piracy and the numbers are very telling because the number of pirated um, attacks by pirates have gone down to, to a handful per year. But it's not, it's not over. The game is not over and we need to continue with our, with our engagement and we need to engage on land. That's why capacity building on land is so crucial. Piracy off the Horn of Africa has been a threat to security and international shipping and served as a means for Somali pirates to demand ransoms for captured ships and the hostages taken from them. With the success of the EU fleet that patrols those waters, the focus now shifts to economic and social development on land, a sustainable long-term approach for when the Navy patrol ships are gone. There is a challenge, of course, because the development programs of any kind have a different timeline than the military or civilian operation. They are long-term by nature, whereas the, the maritime operation is a crisis management engagement. So we need to step up. So engaging on land, uh, engaging in uh, creating different sources of income, that uh, if the young Somalis have uh, a better idea of, of making a living than pirating at sea, then they will certainly do so. They don't want to be recognized as criminals and crooks. The contact group was created in 2009 with the aim of mobilizing international support to address the root causes of piracy at sea and on shore. The chief of staff of the EU Naval Force, Captain Peter Olive, says the impact of piracy has been felt across the Indian Ocean region. The range at which pirates can operate extends all across the Indian Ocean. So the impact of piracy has not only been to the global economic community, but also to the region. And it's had a a significant uh, economic impact in terms of fisheries, um, even affecting things like tourism. 
So there is, a, uh, there is an incentive for the region to be, to be involved in it. Captain Olive told SABC News his fleet has not been responsible for any pirate deaths during their operation since 2008, while over 1,400 pirate captives continue to be held in over 21 states across the world. Pirate hostages have also diminished from 743 in 2011 to the current figure of 49. I'm Shervin Bricebees in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. India's Navy chief resigned after taking moral responsibility for a string of accidents that has struck the Navy, including a fire on a submarine yesterday that left two officers missing. A catastrophic blast on board a similar vessel in August killed all 18 on duty and raised questions over India's fleet of Soviet-era warships. Rana Sen has more from New Delhi. The latest accident was the year's 10th mishap involving India's Navy and the third submarine disaster since August when a Soviet-era sub exploded in Mumbai's harbour, killing all 18 on board. Naval Chief D.K. Joshi resigned in disgust and Brigadier Gurmeet Kanwal said the blame must lie elsewhere. Modernization is completely stagnant over the last 10 years or so, perhaps a little longer than that. And uh, what the Defence Ministry should have provided to the Navy by way of means, for example, the dredging, routine, regular dredging of Mumbai Harbour, it hasn't happened. India's ambitious military modernization program has been hit by a string of corruption scandals. As a result, the army has no effective artillery or armor. The Air Force lacks latest warjets and the Navy appears to be floating on scrap metal, argued General VP Malik, a former army chief. We are paying no attention whatsoever to the five-year defense plans. Now that is a cycle of about 15 years that we should be following. That cycle is not being followed for all major equipments today. There is no defense planning at all. There is no proper dialogue between the political authority and the military and the political authority is quite happy. And main opposition leader Minakshi Lekhi called it a betrayal of the men in uniform. You can imagine the frustration of all the patriotic officers who serve the nation and when they believe in the idea of nation, they continue to submit their reports, they continue to write to the government, they continue to furnish the report that this aircraft is bad, this helicopter is bad, and all that is trashed into the dustbin. India is touted as the world's number one arms buyer, but the world's fourth largest serving military remains a toothless tiger. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. U.S. President Barack Obama has led a somber ceremony to officially mark the opening of the National September 11th Memorial Museum in New York, describing the venue at the site of the attacks as a sacred place of healing and hope. Joined by senior New York City officials, emergency first responders, survivors and the families of victims, President Obama also reflected on a day three years ago when the man responsible for the attacks, Osama bin Laden, was killed by American SEALs in Pakistan and, in his words, justice was done. Sharon Bryce Peace is our report, our correspondent in New York and he sent us this report. Lost, but 
Almost 13 years since that fateful day when almost 3,000 people lost their lives in multiple attacks. Their stories now embalmed in the walls of this memorial museum, as President Barack Obama explained. We stand in the footprints of two mighty towers, graced by the rush of eternal waters. We look into the faces of nearly 3,000 innocent souls, men and women and children of every race, every creed, from every corner of the world. We can touch their names and hear their voices, glimpse the small items that speak to the beauty of their lives, a wedding ring, a dusty helmet, a shining badge. Here, we tell their story so that generations yet unborn will never forget. The Memorial Plaza and Museum cost around $700 million to build and includes some 10,000 artifacts, 23,000 still images and 500 hours of video and film. Current New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, with several of his predecessors present, explained the substance behind the exhibition. Ordinary everyday objects that we find here in the museum, a wallet, a ring, an ID card, a telephone, are unlikely but powerful keepsakes which help us understand the events of that day in human terms. Each piece carries with it another story, one that might have been our own. For don't we all own a pair of shoes we wear to work that could have been the ones we wore that day? Such a pair of shoes is displayed in a glass box, donated by survivor Florence Jones, who walked down 77 flights of stairs before the South Tower collapsed. When I heard that the museum was looking for artifacts, I thought about my shoes. I had put them in a plastic container, and when I took them out, they still had the smell on them from that awful day. And I knew I would never wear them again. So I decided to donate them here. I wanted my nieces and my nephew and every person that asked what happened to see them and maybe understand a little bit better what it felt like to be us on that day. The extensive project includes original steel columns from the towers, a mangled fire truck, a memorial wall of pictures and information about each of the victims. The mayor of New York during the attacks, Rudy Giuliani, reflected on the tragedy that brought out the largest emergency response in the city's history. We will never understand why one person escaped and another didn't. How random it all seems and how powerless it makes us all feel. But what this museum does is allow us to see is that we absolutely can affect each other's lives by what we do at a time of crisis, how we are strengthened by what was done that day. Michael Bloomberg was in charge of the city during the construction and near completion of the site. All the visitors to this museum, those who lived through the tragedy, and those young enough to be learning about it for the first time, will come away with a sense not of the worst of humanity, but of the best. The dedication ended with American composer Aaron Copland's fanfare for the common man, a fitting tribute to the so-called common men and women who did extraordinary things on that day almost 13 years ago 
and are now fittingly remembered for it. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. The headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. At least 31 people, many of them civilians, have been killed in clashes between Christian and Muslim fighters in the Central African Republic this week. Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika has reportedly proposed a raft of reforms, including setting a two-term presidential limit and delegating more authority to the Prime Minister. And more than 30 million children in Africa are out of school, according to a report launched by the Tanzanian government and the UN cultural agency UNESCO in Dar es Salaam. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And a three-day global conference on food and nutrition has begun in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The conference has brought together over 800 experts and humanitarian organizations to discuss how to build resilience to shocks that contribute to hunger in the world. Koleta Wanjohi reports. The world today suffers from economic, social and political shocks that in the end contribute to challenges of hunger and malnutrition. Countries in conflict find themselves battling between the causes of their conflict and the hunger that comes as people are displaced and fail to stick to the food production calendar. More than 800 experts in food and nutrition, as well as humanitarian organizations and other relevant institutions in the world, will be discussing in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, for three days how to create resilience to the causes of hunger. Resilience means helping individual households, communities and countries to anticipate, prepare for, cope and recover from shocks and not only bounce back to where they were before the shocks occurred, but become even better off. The executive director of the International Food Policy Research Institute that has organized the conference, Schengen Fan, explains further. Many reasons. One is always a lack of investment in agriculture, lack of investment in food security. So sometimes we approach these problems in a sino approach. That is, on the one hand, we use the short-term food aid or social protection to protect the poor. On the other hand, some of the long-term growth ignore the short-term fluctuations. So I hope the conference will bring this together. So how short-term relief, short-term social protection can lead to long-term solutions to poverty and hunger. For a continent like Africa, which is rich in manpower and resources and yet still suffers from high levels of malnutrition, Schengen Fan says that research shows that the problem lies primarily with failures of governments to implement strategies that are pro-hunger elimination. Investment in research can help to increase the yield. So with the same amount of land, you can produce more. Second, the research can also reduce the fluctuation or instability of yield. So it's not only higher yield, but also more stable yield. And this is very critical because of the climate change. The climate change has happened, will happen, probably even more so in the future. And another dimension is nutrition. 
So investment in science, investment in research can improve the nutrition of the same crop, for example, rice, potato, maize, sorghum, millet. So through research, we can enhance nutrition of these uh, different food crops. The Global Conference of Food and Nutrition comes as several African countries in Africa are facing the challenge of prolonged hunger, either because of the ongoing conflicts in their countries or the effects of climate change. Koletanjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Today, in 1985, the International Conference on Sports, on Sports Boycott Against South Africa starts their three-day conference at UNESCO House in Paris, France. The conference was organized by the Special Committee Against Apartheid in, co- in cooperation with the Supreme Council of Sports in Africa and the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Angola has invested 200 million U.S. dollars for its first ever population and housing census that kicked off yesterday. Here's Channel Africa's Phil Nello in the Angolan capital, Wanda, with more. The Angolan National Institute of Statistics has started May 16, 2014, the first ever national general population and housing census. Since obtaining independence in 1975, Angola has never organized general census in order to know how many people there are in the country and what social condition they live. The coordinator of the nationwide population and housing census has reiterated that hours after the start of the process, all is in place for a successful operation. Mr. Camilo Saita was speaking at a press conference convened for an hour assessment of the activities so far conducted toward the census scheduled to end on May 31st. The technical provincial, municipal and community groups are already working with us, having the national plan as the basis for their work. Also last week, we met the provincial commanders of the national police to receive information about the role of the police officers during this census. So, the police is already implementing its security planning to secure the entire process. We are spending 200 million US dollars for the entire process and so far we spent 59% of this amount. The biggest shares of these expenditures are with the staff and the wider logistic. Also, in case of doubt, we have created a call center. Anyone can call 114 for further information about the census. Let me also say that the incidents that have happened are baseless. Food is being given to the registrars, everyone is being paid $10 per day, and this is what we are giving to all registrars working on this census. There is no other information about it. There was Mr. Camilo Seita, the coordinator of the nationwide uh, population and housing census. Many Angolans are finding difficulties to understand the questions that the registrars will pose on them during the census. Mrs. Etelvina Correa, coordinator for special cases for the census, clarifies this situation. We have questions in the inquiry that are related to the target person. 
These questions are about sex, age, if everyone at a house is under the household aggregate, nationality, religion, marital status, if he or she is a physically handicapped person, educational background, employment status, professional and position, business owner or works for a private or government company, and the marital status. However, for women from 12 to 14 years of age, we are asking how many children they had during their reproductive period. These are questions in the population census. On the housing census questionnaire, we have questions regarding the province, municipal and commune codes and to see if it's a rural or an urban area. There was Mrs. Etelvina Correa, coordinator for special cases for the census, clarifying the questionnaire for this census. African illegal immigrants in Angola have expressed concerns about the census, saying that this process will force them to leave the country. Mr. Paulo Fonseca, technical coordinator of the census, assured all illegal immigrants that the objective of the census is not to oust them from the country. All foreigners residing in our country may answer our questions without being afraid that this will disclose who is a legal immigrant or who is not. All we want to count is how many people live in Angola, either nationals or foreigners. We want to know how many people are in Angola from May 16 to May 31, 2014. There was Mr. Paul Fonseca, technical coordinator of the census. The entire machinery of the census is using 556 trucks and motorbikes to cover the entire country. In addition, Two airplanes have been made available for the provinces of Moshiko and Kwandkubangu due to their geographical extension, including two helicopters to be used. 100,000 tons of registration and publicity materials have been distributed to all provinces of the country. Non-resident foreigners in Angola during the census will also be registered, with the exception of diplomats based in the country. Phil Nello. Channel Africa, Angola. South Africa's coastal city of Cape Town has been named the top municipality in the African Utility Week Awards earlier this week. The continent's leading utility and energy professionals and projects were honored for their successes in the industry. More than 5,000 power and water professionals gathered for the 14th annual African Utility Week and Clean Power Africa Conference and Expo in Cape Town. The event focused on energy and water efficiency, clean energy solutions and pan-African cooperation. Other winners at the awards include the South African Power Pools, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana, Namibia, Zizabona Interconnector Project, which addresses issues of trade electricity. More from Claire Falkvane, Content Director at African Utility Week and Clean Power Africa. I think the event went really well. I think it's been fantastic to see the growing numbers of people from both Africa and you know South Africa that are participating. It's been wonderful to see an increase in foreign participation as well in terms of people from uh, both Europe and Asia. I think that people have felt that the program this year really addressed a lot of the challenges or issues that they've been 
trying to address within their utilities. So as an event, we've been very happy with how things have, have gone. What were some of the issues that were highlighted mainly at the conference sessions and what would you say could have been some of the outcomes thereof? I think that probably the, the, one of the biggest things that has been coming to light is the growing influence of renewable energy on the utility market and also the growing use of renewable energy within the large power user and industrial and commercial sectors. That is seen by, first of all, the, the increase of numbers in terms of people that were attending those sessions, but also the increase in numbers of businesses that are actually using renewable energies to either supplement or even in some cases totally power hotel, I guess. That has been a really fantastic thing and there's also a, a very growing awareness of the use of energy efficiency tools and just being more aware of how you use your energy. So I think those are are two of the biggest things that I've seen coming up. I think as well, there's obviously quite a big focus on additional generation capacity, both within South Africa and the rest of the continent. And then, of course, from a water perspective, it's very much, again, around making sure that we are planning correctly for how we use water and also for addressing the issues around leakage of water because water is one of our most precious resources but it's not one of those resources that is necessarily given the amount of attention I think from a, from a utility perspective and from a financial perspective that it actually deserves. Now Cape Town was named as top municipality at the awards that the Africa Utility Week hosted. What do you make of this and what does this really mean for South Africa? I think it's really wonderful that Cape Town was recognized as the top municipality. It certainly doesn't indicate that none of the other municipalities are not performing. I think it's just in terms of what Cape Town is doing at the moment, they have been recognized as a particularly well-functioning municipality. You know, they're not the only award winners. It's always nice for us to recognize people, particularly within the utility sector. Unfortunately, utilities are one of those industries where people don't notice how utilities operate until they don't operate. So when you do something right, nobody notices, and when you do something wrong, unfortunately, nobody forgets. And that's very much the, the situation with utilities, both in South Africa and I think across the rest of the continent. So it's also been nice to actually acknowledge just amongst the industry who the people are that are doing well and how they are running their businesses, not necessarily brilliantly, but just how they are running their businesses sustainably, efficiently, effectively, and give recognition where recognition is due. That was Claire Falkvane, Content Director at African Utility Week and Clean Power Africa on the line, talking to Komoto Mopulane. It's 8.46 Central African time, and Tabisola Hoko is up next with our economics update. The International Monetary Fund says that the future continues to look bright for sub-Saharan Africa with robust growth expected to accelerate next year. But it has also warned of possible threats to the continent's economy coming from outside the region. Isabel Adonia from the IMF Africa Department explains. A striking trend we're seeing right now is that we have all country groups in sub-Saharan Africa 
grow at a at a robust to fast pace. So the low-income countries in particular are now growing at rates between 5 and 7%. This is due to good harvests and a good agricultural production in many countries. We also have continued investment in natural resources and infrastructure in many countries. International investors who put in money in Africa are increasingly looking beyond the continent's top economies as they hunt for new business. A report of our London-based advisory firm, Ernestine Young, shows investors are looking beyond South Africa, Nigeria and Kenya to expand operations. It says that the number of projects in South Africa and Nigeria declined in 2013, while there are a notable increase in Ghana, Mozambique, Tanzania and Uganda. Ajen Sitter is the chief executive for Ernest in Young Africa. This year's survey revealed an interesting new trend. The most perceptions about the continent is that the investment goes into mining and metals, oil and gas, the extractive industries. What we found is, in fact, the biggest growth in FDI has actually gone into the consumer-facing industries, so technology, media, telecoms, uh, retail consumer products, financial services. In fact, more than 50% of FDI has gone into those consumer services. So it's a good story of diversification. It is not just a story of natural resources. South Africa's trade and industry minister, Rob Davies, has hailed German car manufacturer Mercedes-Benz for its new C-Class model as it at its plants in East London in the Eastern Cape province. The production is the biggest under the current government. Davies says it will broaden South Africa's car export base. This is the largest single AIS-supported investment that's uh, taken place in the life of this administration. And as you say, it's, uh, it's good to be able to uh, come to this event uh, before uh, we hand over to our successors. Uh, it's good to come in and, uh, as it were, this is the climax of the work we've done in the automotive sector uh, in the, the turn of this administration. Kenya has rebuked Britain, the United States and Australian fronts for issuing warnings about travel to this East African country and particularly its main port city after a series of attacks there. Kenya called the alerts unfriendly, saying they would increase panic and play into the hands of those behind the gun and grenade assaults. Kenya has blamed bomb blasts in the capital Nairobi and the main port city Mombasa this month. The U.S. dollar, 1034 South African rands, 855 Botswana Pulas, 659 Zambian Kwachas, 0.59 British Pound, 0.72 Euro. Gold, $1296, Platinum, $1463 an ounce. Brand crude on 09, 5 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabi. So, Msubudi Makura up next for that sports update.
Thank you, Lulu. Starting off with football news, Dennis Mumble, the CEO of the South African Football Association, is almost certain that South Africa will be represented by four teams in next season's CAF club competitions. The association will receive official confirmation after the CAF executive committee meeting next Friday. CAF added two more spots to PSL teams due to the good performance Orlando Paris displayed in last season's CAF Champions League campaign by reaching the final. Final. League champions Mamelodi Sundowns and runner-ups Kaiser Chiefs qualify to play in the CAF Champions League. But Vizvitz, who came third, will play in the CAF Confederations Cup, while Orlando Pirates, by virtue of reaching the Nedbank Cup final, will also join Vitz in the Confederation Cup. Mumble says that having additional teams will be beneficial to the country, as these competitions will give more players international exposure. Sustained international exposure is what really helps us to understand where football is going. So it will be good for South African football. The more players that are exposed to international competitions, the better for us. And I'm hoping that all of our teams, once they get the opportunity to participate, will take full advantage of that. So we would welcome any additional slots. Vera Powell, head coach of the South African senior women's team, wants her team to defend better as she prepares her charges for the African Women's Championship qualifier against the Comoros Islands scheduled for next weekend. Banyana Banyana will play an international friendly match against Ghana on Sunday at the Dobsonville Stadium in Johannesburg as part of their preparations for the Comoros Islands match. Powell believes that the attack-minded West Africans will give Banyana Banyana a proper test, especially in defence. Well, normally I would take a team uh, that is more or less of the same strength of the opponent of the qualifying match, but in this situation, uh, with players that are so mobile and so creative, but lacking the defensive organisation, that is why I uh, ask Ghana. Ghana is only a few places above us, but that is only because they don't play a lot of matches, because everybody knows that they are really the top of Africa, and they have been to the World Cup before. So we expect a lot of pressure on our defence, and that's exactly what we need at this moment. And on to athletics news, South Africa 100-metre record holder Simon Mahakwe has resumed training as he prepares for the Eugene Diamond League set to take place in the United States at the end of this month. Mahakwe missed the South African Open Championship in Porchestrum in the northwest province last week due to injury, much to the disappointment of the local fans. Mahakwe says he is now in a better shape. It was a pity for me because, like, I had a slide and my muscle was stiff. So, like, I could not run because I could not risk it because I had to go to Eugene to run there. So I had to take care of myself, you know, like, go to the physio, see the physio. And then the physio said, no, I could not run there because if I run there, I will risk my muscle. You know? So right now, I mean, I'm in a better shape now. With the Commonwealth Games only two months away, Mahakwe says his aim is to get a medal. You know, our aim is to get the gold medal. We're preparing ourselves for uh, Olympics 2016, to get a gold medal in the uh, Olympics. The Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in two months' time? We're not sure that Usain Bolt is going to be in the Commonwealth, you know. It doesn't matter if it comes or not. But what I'm saying is that I'm going there to medal in the Commonwealth. It doesn't matter which matter, but I'm going there to do my best.
And finally, in swimming news, Michael Phelps will take another small step in his comeback to competitive swimming when he competes in two races today, but this time he will do without the presence of his friend and greatest rival. Phelps competed for the first time since retiring after the London Olympics when he plunged back into the pool at the Grand Prix meet in Phoenix, United States, last month. He was narrowly beaten in the 100 meters butterfly by Ryan Lochte, his uber-competitive teammate to Phelps credits for, for driving him back to greater heights. That loss only helped the competitive juices to start flowing again in an ominous warning to his rivals that he has his height or rather heart set on greater goals. Phelps will again compete in the 100-meter butterfly at the Grand Prix meet in Charlotte, Northern Carolina today, but without Lochte, who is taking a break to overcome a minor injury. He will also compete in the 200-meter butterfly, an event he won at the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games when he captured a mind-boggling eight gold medals, but dropped from his program for London. Phelps has not yet revealed what his long-term plans are at this time, insisting he's simply testing the waters to see if he still enjoys the grind of training, but he has not ruled out the possibility of competing at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. While those are your sports news at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice on the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Chad closes its border with violence ravaged Central African Republic. Kenyan lawmakers threaten to evict British farmers. And September 11 Memorial Museum opens in New York. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for this week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za, follow us on Twitter at channelafrica1, or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is my Vigizolo with Kona.